Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode four, if you can believe it, of Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, It's been a seance. You know, we've kind of had a non-exhaustive walk through all these different entities. Uh, The first first half of this, the first section leading up to now has been, what are the two sides of your mind? System one and system two. And we hammered the shit out of it. But now that we know that, I refilled with a claw, I got a coffee, I won't tell you what time it is, but it's, it's close to a normal time to, to drink a claw. Uh, we're going to go into some specific examples. And, you know, I think it's important to understand these examples, but, but actually the examples are less important than the principle. And the principle is, if you accept, if you realize that our minds can have bias, our minds can you know, thin slice something and, and, you know, system two doesn't critically think about it and we can make a bad decision. If you know that and you slow down, that is the point here. But let's, let's continue this seance. And rather than have a million episodes in this series, uh, I'm going to pick a, a few of the best examples of, of heuristics, rules of thumb, of biases. Uh, but if you ultimately, if, if you, if you like the juice, if you want more, you're going to have to do the technique of Read the book, little buddy. The Law of Small Numbers. So this is an example of something that intuitively we're real shitty at. A study of the incidence of kidney cancer in 3,141 counties of the U.S. reveals a remarkable pattern. The counties with the incidence of kidney cancer that's lowest, mostly rural, sparsely populated, and located in traditional Republican states in the Midwest, South, and the West. What do we make of this? Buck yeah, boy, guns even keep away kidney disease. Your mind has been very active in the last few seconds, and it was mainly a system two operation. You deliberately searched your memory and formulated a hypothesis, but system one was not idle. The operation of System 2 depended on the facts and suggestions retrieved from associative memory. You probably rejected the idea that Republican politics provide protection against kidney cancer. (laughs) Speak for yourself, you commie gun grabber. You possibly ended up focusing on the fact that the counties with low incidence of cancer are mostly rural. It is both easy and tempting to infer that their lower cancer rates are directly due to clean living and rural life. Now consider the counties in which the incidence of kidney cancer is highest. These ailing counties tend to be the same. Midwest, rural, sparsely populated, mostly Republican. It is easy to infer that their high cancer rates might be directly due to the poverty of the rural lifestyle, the high fat diet, too much alcohol, too much tobacco. But something's wrong, of course. The rural lifestyle cannot explain both very high and very low incidences of kidney cancer. The key factor 
is not that the counties were rural or predominantly Republican, it's that rural counties have small populations. And the main lesson to be learned is not about epidemiology, but it's about the difficult relationship between our minds and statistics. System one is highly adept in one form of thinking. It automatically identifies causal connections between events, sometimes even when the connection doesn't exist. When told about the high incidences of kidney cancer, you immediately assumed that these counties are different from other counties for a reason, and there must be a cause to explain this difference. However, System 1 is inept when faced with merely statistical facts which change the probability of outcomes but do not cause them to happen. Okay, so, so think about this, okay? What he's basically saying is, by the fucking fact of math, over a long enough period, if you get a bunch of small little samples, random chance will cause some of those samples to just have variations, to have outliers. A random event, by definition, does not lend itself to explanation, but collections of random events do behave in a highly regular fashion. So another example, let's say you have two jars of marbles, half red, half white. Let's say Jack draws four marbles each trial and Jill draws seven. They both record each time they observe a homogeneous sample. Okay, so, so basically you got Jack drawn four, Jill drawn seven, it's half and half, uh, red and white marbles. Okay, and then Jack and Jill are going to record every time that Jack gets four marbles that are all red or all white, and Jill's going to record every time that she gets seven marbles that are all red or all white. If they go on long enough, Jack will observe such extreme outcomes more often than Jill by a factor of eight. A mathematical fact Samples of four marbles yield extreme results more often than samples of seven. So, meaning, you know, if you're, if you're trying to catch a really rare fucking Pokemon, okay, and you're trying to catch it with a Pokeball, it's a lot more likely that it's going to get away than if you're using a damn Ultra Ball. You know, if you draw from a jar and you draw four in a row, just merely by fucking probability, it's more likely that you draw four of the same marbles than it is for, uh, for someone to draw seven of the same marbles so just by the fact that like hey it i can flip heads four times in a row and it's more likely that i'll get four heads in a row than that i will get seven heads in a row now imagine the population of the united states as marbles in a giant urn some marbles are marked kc for kidney cancer you draw samples of marbles and populate each county in turn rural samples are smaller than other samples just as in the game with Jack and Jill, extreme outcomes, very high or very low cancer rates, are more likely to be found in sparsely populated counties. This is all there is to the story. So that's the fucking crazy thing. Rural, Republican, all those other facts, they don't matter. The only thing that matters is the size of the population. And with small population samples, just fucking randomness can occasionally have extreme outcomes show up. And that's it. That's all. Randomness. And our system ones are helly bad at understanding and thinking statistically like that. The small population of a county neither causes nor prevents cancer. It merely allows the incidence of cancer to be much higher or lower than it is in the larger population. The deeper truth is that there's nothing to explain.
But he points out, we all fucking know about statistics rationally, but yet how easy it is to fool us. How quick we all become princesses when the beasts take us for their wives. Our predilection for causal thinking exposes us to serious mistakes in evaluating the randomness of truly random events. We reject the idea that the process is truly random. Random processes produce many sequences that convince people that the process is not random at all. Apparently in World War II, German bombing was deemed impossible to be random since there were huge areas where the bombs didn't fall. It was guessed that the German spies must be in those areas so they're avoiding them. But bitch, it was fucking random. All the while evoking a strong impression that it was not. And the point here is, in my mind, is not that we need to memorize the law of small numbers, though it might be useful to know it exists. It's that this is a pernicious way our fucking system one jumps to gigantically wrong conclusions that sometimes, you know, imagine if you're if you're um, developing like a, like a corporate go-to-market strategy and you're like, okay, well, we're going to focus on those populations that truly love us. And, and you go to those small little populations, but it's actually just surveying error. And, and you know, you could, you could go bankrupt because you make this small little wrong decision. So that's the first that, you know, the, the, the deity in front of us in this seance is shape shifted to the law of smart, small numbers. But now it's going to shapeshift again to anchors. Amos and I once rigged a wheel of fortune and it was marked from zero to a hundred, but we had built it so it would only stop at 10 or 65. One of us would stand in front of a small group, spin the wheel and ask them to write down the number of which the wheel stopped, which was, which was of course either 10 or 65. We then asked them two questions. So, so we're doing, he's doing an experiment. He's got a wheel of fortune, but it's rigged. Some of the results are going to come on 10, some are going to come on 65, but it's never going to be 20, it's never going to be 30, it's never going to be 40. You know, and it looks like it's 0 to 100, but he's he's priming, he's priming these people with either 10 or 65 and then asking them two questions. One, is the percentage of African nations among UN members smaller or larger than the number you just wrote? What is your best guess for the percentage of African nations in the UN? The spin of a wheel of fortune, even one that is not rigged, cannot possibly yield useful information about anything, and the participants in our experiment should simply have ignored it. But they did not ignore it. The average estimates for those who saw 10 and 65 were 25% and 45% respectively. So what he's saying that statistically significantly across a large enough sample of students that this is a universal human pattern, a goddamn spin of a rigged wheel that either shows you 10 or shows you 65 and then asks you to forecast something markedly influences people's answers. The phenomenon we were studying is so common and so important in the everyday world that you should know its name. It's an anchoring effect. It occurs when people consider a particular value for an unknown quantity before estimating that quantity. What happens is one of the most reliable and robust results of experimental psychology. The estimates stay close to the number that people, that people considered, hence the image of an anchor. So uh, in sales as an example, you see this so much. When you're presenting price, the gravest error is to anchor them at a really low price. You know, so let's say you're talking about, you know, 
data science projects and you're, you're talking to a client you're like hey you know you know our I've had some projects that are 5,000, some that are, you know, 20,000 and, you know, but we'll come back, we'll give you a quote. And then you come back and it's 200,000. They're going to be like, what? but I thought you said some is five, some is 20. I'm like, yeah, but yours is 200. Or you come back and, you know, if you're early on, you're like, you know, hey, you know, don't quote me on this, but, you know, I've seen projects anywhere between, you know, 70 and, and, and 400 here. Um, you know, yours seems a little bit on the higher end, uh, but I'll get back to you. And they're like, oh, God damn it. And if they keep, if they keep talking to you, I mean, they know what they're getting into. And then you come back, you're like, it's 200, but they're happy because just like I started the whole intro, they've anchored, you know, in that example, you know, your parents thought that you impregnated that girl and you have AIDS, but you just got a C minus, you know, for me, I, I, I learned the meaning of pain. And now anytime I feel pain, I compare it to, you know, running 14 miles and then bailing hay, no factor. Uh, Daniel says, my hunch is that anchoring is a case of suggestion. For example, do you feel a slight numbness in your left leg? Always prompts quite a few people to report that their left leg does feel a bit strange. Like for me, I'm sitting right here, but I have my legs like weirdly crossed. And dude, my left leg does feel a little bit weird. You know, I would guess, and again, this is just creative writing because I haven't talked to girls in a million years because I'm happily married. But I guess, you know, you go up to a random girl and you're like, Hey, do you want to go on a date? I would guess that's not as effective as you're like, hey, can I ask you a question? Would you describe yourself as open-minded? Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, okay, well, do you believe that sometimes you just get a feeling that you just need to trust? Oh, yes. Yeah, totally. And then you're like, well, if I were to tell you I got one of those feelings and then we just have to, I, I just have to ask you on a date, would you go with me? you know and again dude, that's fucking creative writing i'm just writing literatica over here but i would think that the, the conversion rate of getting someone priming them with like hey are you open-minded do you sometimes believe in wild feelings i have one of those feelings right now let's go on a date is better than just like hey will you go on a date with me the use and abuse of anchors anchoring effects explain why arbitrary scarcity makes people want to buy stuff you know everything must go when it's gone it's gone you know that's honestly no comment when if i want that shit or not you know in sales sometimes you'll, you'll see people do hey the price goes up on monday you know, well you know we are changing our price it's going up uh, you know prices are readjusted each month um and what daniel says is is if you're negotiating in a market and you know you go up to somebody you're like how much does it cost they're like it costs ten thousand, but you know they're screwing you over Daniel says, my advice to students when I taught negotiations, when the seller presents an obviously outrageous price, instead of replying with an equally outrageous low price that creates a gap that will be difficult to bridge, make a scene, storm out, make it clear to yourself and the other side that you will not continue the negotiation at the suggested number and let them come down. And, you know, we're just in this seance and this just this ghost is just kind of shimmering in front of us. So I'm not saying we even need to fully understand this, but I think even just knowing that anchoring is real, is super helpful. You know, as this specific demon shapeshifts, the picture that we are perfectly rational calculation machines starts to crumble around us like David Hasselhoff single-handedly taking down the Berlin Wall. And as we look up at this ghost, this presentation, this shapeshifter, we now get into availability. So in 1971, um, Daniel and his boy Amos lived in Oregon, and they did Oregon shit. And uh, one of their projects was to study what we called the availability heuristic. We thought of the heuristic when we asked ourselves, 
What do people actually do when they wish to estimate the frequency of a category such as people who divorced after the age of 60 or dangerous plants? The answer is straightforward. Instances of the class will be retrieved from memory, and if retrieval is easy and fluent, the category will be judged as large. So like for me sitting here, dude, I can't think of a single divorced person over the age of 60. But if I lived, or not lived, if I worked in an old folks home, I might know that 30% of the people that come through there are divorced. So then I would have a much different thought, but neither of those is necessarily thinking about it. Statistically, we're just thinking about like what's easiest. And so for me, like, I don't know, no examples come to my mind. It must not be common, but it could also be, I just don't hang out with a lot of old people. We define the availability heuristic as the process of judging frequency by the ease with which instances come to mind. The availability heuristic, like others, substitutes one question for another. You wish to estimate the size of a category or the frequency of an event, but you report an impression of the ease with which instances come to mind. Substitution of questions inevitably produces systemic errors. So like think about this, like what percentage of priests do sex abuse? I don't know. I would assume super fucking low, but you know, if I think about just like how easy it comes to my mind, damn dude, I've seen like 10 movies about that. Like I bet it's a lot, but I, but that's actually not real. That's just like availability heuristic. A dramatic event temporarily increases the availability of its category. So think of the answers that people would give to the frequency of private helicopter deaths before and after Kobe Bryant died. So, you know, like before, you're like, hey, how, how many people die in, in private hel helicopter accidents? And you're like, well, private helicopter, you know, to own a private helicopter, you have to be rich as fuck. Um, and like, that's probably really, really safe. It's probably actually safer than government helicopters. So like very low. But then, you know, you know Kobe Bryant, you're like, well, Kobe is like the picture of competence for him to die in a private helicopter crash. That actually, it must be really dangerous. And then, you know, you, there might, with that one event, the estimates might go from 2% to 30% or something something that crazy. Like for me, I, I know that my house got robbed when I was three and my dad had to chase the guy out of the house using a coat rack as a battering ram. And I think it is only through luck and his magnanimity that I've never eaten Korean. But my wife grew up on a farm and no one ever locked the doors. So like she hates locking the doors and thinks I'm just being so stupid up to and including calling me pussy to try to get me to not lock the doors. And it's like, listen, I'm sorry. If you want me to be the person who goes and investigates the scary noise, we can't leave everything unlocked. If it's me, all I ask is that I get it. Doors can't stop intruders, but I just want that extra 10 seconds that the locked door gives me. I do not want to start with the intruder in my bed. But both of us are filtering that through availability. A few crazy facts. Strokes cause almost two times as many deaths as all accidents combined, but 80% of respondents judged accidental death to be more likely. Tornadoes were seen as more frequent killers by than asthma, but asthma kills 20 times more people. The lesson's clear. Estimates of causes of death are warped by media coverage. So all of this is like, weaving the picture that sometimes we're pretty fucking shitty at statistical thinking. And, and he does some damn exhaustive experiment designed to trick system one. Um, you know, he describes a guy and, and he describes him as exactly as what we think a librarian would be like. 
and he asks us to guess the probability of this guy being one of nine professions, librarian being one. But the trick is the base rate. So that's, that's the actual probability of those professions is critical. So like, think about, um, like what's one, what's one of the most common, uh, jobs out there? I don't know. Um, administrative assistant or, or customer service rep, let's say customer service rep. Okay. But you, you think of customer service rep and you think of them as like, man, you know, they're kind of personable. They're talkful, talking, talkful. Oh, it's getting late, son. Um, but then you think of librarian, you think of quiet, you think of like introverted, but there might be 900 times as many customer service reps as there are librarians. So when you're thinking about how to judge the probability, that 900 times amount, the base rate, that's actually like extremely fucking critical. And yeah, great. This person like has some of the traits of what you think stereotypically a librarian is, um, but that, that should be taken a small bit into account. But a lot of us, we way undervalue that base rate in favor of how easy it is to be like, yeah, that guy's a librarian. And that's what Daniel's calling representativeness. Um, as expected, we substitute a judgment of representativeness for the probability that we are asked to assess. And he gives this uh, idea, this um, test thing to 114 graduate students, all who did the same mistake. The question about probability was difficult, but the, but the question about similarity was easier and it was answered instead. But this is a this is a serious mistake. I mean, think about that because judgments about similarity and probability are not constrained by the same logical rules. You know, if there's 900 times more customer service reps, but we just quickly and, and every single graduate student made this mistake, we quickly look at it and we're like, yeah, librarian. We could actually just be so fucking wrong. We're like, we're all going to lead ourselves to our deaths. The representative heuristic is involved when someone says she will win the election. You can see she's a winner or he, he, go, he won't go far. He has too many tattoos. Uh, we rely on representativeness when we judge the potential leadership of a candidate for office by the shape of his chin or the forcefulness of his speeches. So dude, if you want to see an example of this, Google the, the former UFC fighter, Brian Stan and uh, bro. That, that face, that, that's the most, it's the most blockheaded face ever. I mean, just his face, you look at it and you're like, he should be a general. But in reality, dude, he just has a face. Enhanced activation of system two caused a significant improvement in predictive accuracy. So they're doing this test, but then, you know, when they say things like, hey, think like a, a statistician or like, you know, go really slow and be careful. If you're able to activate that system two, you're like, you know, let's say you're talking about Brian Stan. You're like, hey, don't, don't judge people by their physical appearances. How likely do you think this person's going to be to be a general? And, and then you, when you do that and you make people have their system two come on, then a lot more accurate. But, um, you know, it's hard to do. There are two possible reasons for the failure of system two, ignorance and laziness. And that's all we're trying to do here, my priest. Remove the ignorance and kill the laziness. So next, another example. Um, and, and this is just in the vein of specific presentations of how our minds don't think statistically a lot and how many times it's cool, but a lot of times bitch, you're about to just, you're about to sign up for a job and, and ruin three, three years of your life because you didn't actually think it through correctly. Uh, so this is a, a pretty crazy next example, um, especially crazy if you believe everybody deeply understands statistics, but still crazy. Linda is 31 years old. She's single, outspoken, 
very bright. She majored in philosophy as a student, and she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice when she was in college. And she also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Now for the crazy part. Let's think about what jobs. So, so she, we know she did that in college. Now she's 31. What job do you think she has right now? So she's a philosophy major. She really cared about social justice. She did demonstrations. So she's kind of got to be a little bit of a badass. Um, let's think about what job she could have. So is she a teacher? Does she work in a bookstore and take yoga classes? Is she active in the feminist movement? Is she a social worker? Is she a bank teller? Is she a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement? Let's think about that. And it's almost a perfect consensus. Lynn is a good fit for an active feminist. She's a fairly good fit for someone who works in a bookstore and takes yoga classes. You know, we think about like, okay, philosophy major, deeply concerned with political issues, uh, like the demonstrations, like she's a very poor fit for a bank teller, but focus on the critical point. Does Linda look more like a bank teller or more like a bank teller who is active in the feminist movement? You know, we think of bank teller who's active in the feminist movement and we're like, oh, okay, I can see how, you know, like, yeah, you know, they're doing this job as a stepping stone. You know, everybody's got to get paid and she probably hates it, but like, in her free time, she's, she's super active in the feminist movement. And that's what gives her life meaning. Everybody agrees that Linda fits the idea of a feminist bank teller better than just a bank teller. But this is where everybody is idiots. He almost didn't test this because it was so goddamn obvious to him. He, he had some graduate student fill out this fucking thing and, and he like a bunch of people did some answers. And he was like glancing through the answers he found that all the subjects had ranked feminist bank teller as more probable than bank teller. And he's so imbued with understanding statistics that like he says, I was so surprised that I still retain a flashbulb memory of the gray color of the metal desk and where everybody was when I made the discovery. <laughs> because God damn it, there are obviously way more bank tellers than feminist bank tellers. Just so think, think about what he's saying. He's saying that what's more likely that she is, like think of the logic of a Venn diagram. What's more likely, that she is a feminist bank teller or feminist bank teller? It's, it's way more likely that she's just a bank teller than she is a feminist bank teller. That's like, how likely, is it likely that she's part of the whole class? Like, is it more likely she's a dog or she's a golden retriever who's also a dog? Like, okay, well, it's more likely she's a dog because if she's a dog, she's also a golden retriever. But remarkably, the sinners seem to have no shame. When I asked my large undergraduate class, in some indignation, he says, do you realize that you have violated an elementary rule of logic? Someone in the back row shouted, so what? And then he shot them all. Amos and I introduced the idea of a conjunction fallacy, which people commit when they judge a conjunction of two events, here, bank teller and feminist, to be more probable than one of the events, bank teller. So. The point isn't necessarily like that this matters, but it's the fact that we we look at that and like intuitively system one, we want to make this this obvious statistical mistake. You know, it's like thinking you go to you go to Greencastle, Indiana, Walmart. Well, is it more likely you meet a Republican there or a Republican who hunts? And you're like, well, fuck, you know, Republican who hunts. That's like that's like the whole population of Greencastle, Indiana. But you could have a Republican who's there or a Republican who hunts. And, and the more specific criteria obviously is less likely. 
but our minds don't quite understand that. Uh, some guy wrote, I know the correct answer, but a little homunculus in my head continues to jump up and down shouting at me. She can't just be the bank teller. Read the description. The little homunculus is, of course, system one. The uncritical substitution of plausibility for probability has pernicious effects on judgment when scenarios are used as tools for forecasting. So we're substituting plausibility. You know, it's, oh yeah, she's a, it just sounds more likely that she's a feminist because we know she's a feminist, but like, oh, if she's got to be a bank teller, she's probably like, you know, like a grudging feminist bank teller than just a bank teller. So what have we learned from these about the workings of system two? Well, one conclusion, which is not new, is that system, system two is not impressively alert. Everybody knows the logic of Venn diagrams, but lots of people forget to apply this even when the shit is right in front of their fucking face. Um, I, I put that in quotes. Pretty sure Daniel didn't get that fired up, but he feels, he feels that way. But the laziness of part of system two is only part of the story. If their next vacation had depended on it and they were told to follow logic and not answer until they were sure of it, I believe most of our subjects would have avoided the conjunction fallacy. And so again, the, the specific fallacy isn't important, but it's that like the solution of sitting down, going slow, thinking about it, and then making a well-reasoned decision, that's the fucking solution. But all the inertia of our minds wants to just roll on and just go, oh, we have famine, it's bank Taylor. The seance rolls on. We're in the midst of it. Nearing the end, a new specter begins to emerge. And that specter is that causes Trump statistics. Uh, consider the following scenario and note your intuitive answer to the question. Uh, a cab was involved in a hit and run accident at night. There's two cab companies, the green and the blue. Uh, some bullshit statistics showing green is way more likely, but a witness says the car was blue. How likely was the car actually blue? And so he has some statistics and some fucking math, but he says, this is a standard problem of Bayesian inference. <laughs> Duh. Does some math. The two sources of information can be combined with the Bayes rule. The correct answer is 41%. However, you can probably guess what people do when faced with this problem. They ignore the base rate and they go with the witness. The most common answer is 80%. So basically what he's saying, and I, I cut through that a bit, but like imagine that there's, it is way, way, way statistically less likely that it was a blue car involved in this accident. But the, there's a witness. It's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was blue. When, when, when we're actually appraising how likely it is, we, we look at that witness and we're like, pretty sure we, it was blue. Maybe we like lower the probability of them being right by like 20% and we say 80. But based on that, that math he's doing, it's, it's, it should be like 41%. So that's the difference between a B and a low F. You know, just, just because we're not, you know, we're, we're wanting to make this story we, we could get it so wrong, we get an F instead of a B. And even if, the, if those probabilities aren't like exact, the principle here is, even if statistical thinking suggests that it is highly likely that the cab was green, we'll overweight the story. Overweight the unreliable witness higher than reality. Uh, now consider the following. Uh, same example, same mathematical probabilities, but a, but a better story. The two companies operate the same number of cabs. 
but green cabs are involved in 85% of accidents, which if you think about it, if there's way, and those 85%, like that's matching the quantity. So like, that's another way of saying that is like, there's a lot more green cabs, but if you put it like this, green cabs are involved in 85% of accidents. The info about the witness is the same as before. The two versions of the problem are mathematically indistinguishable, but they're psychologically quite different. People who read the first version do not know how to use the base rate and often ignore it. And that first version was like, there's a lot of green cabs. I'm like, well, a lot of green cabs doesn't necessarily mean that the witness is wrong. In contrast, people who read the second version give considerable weight to the base rate. Why? Well, in the first version, the base rate of blue cabs is a statistical fact about the cabs in the city. Okay, so it's just like, hey, there's less blue cabs. You're like, whatever. A mind that is hungry for causal stories finds nothing to chew on. So, you know, your mind, we want to make a story out of this, but like less blue cars isn't a story. How does the number of green and blue cabs in the city, like that doesn't cause this cab to get into an accident. In the second though, you form a stereotype about green drivers recklessness and how they all must be madmen. Just think about that. So mathematically identical, but 85% of green cab drivers get into accidents. I said that weird, but you get it. So what we do is we make this stereotype. We're like, holy shit, they all must be fucking crazy people. And then we actually use the base rate, which is most important. And, and we kind of like kind of adjust based on the meth heads description. Stereotyping is a bad word in our culture, but in my usage, it is neutral. One of the basic characteristics of system one is that it represents categories as norms and prototypical exemplars. We want to apply causes even when statistics tell us variations have to be random noise. Um, so again, we're, we're just trying to put causes to math, but, but sometimes th there's not a cause or like sometimes it's the opposite. Don't trust the witness. Um, he, he gives a really good example. So in statistics, everybody knows this, duh, cause you know, we're all smart like Daniel. Uh, there's something called regression to the mean. And so if there's an average, the mean, and you do a bunch of trials, everything is going to get pulled to the mean, the average. So like if, if you're, if you're above the average, um, you know, the next time it's, it's likely that, that you're going to be back to closer to average. If you're way below the average, it's likely that the next trial, you're going to be like closer to average. And so if we take any two random trials, if there's a mean of performance and one of the trials does a really good job, the second one's likely to be worse. If someone did a horrible job, it's likely they will be pulled up to the average. So, so thinking about this in like an example, um, think of like a golf tournament. Okay, let's say someone shoots 66, which is super good. Okay, not very many scores, like good, good job. Okay, um, but we humans want to ignore that luck often contributes to success. And so, um, so let's say they, they score 66. Okay, uh, and, and that's a better score than they usually do. The golfer who did so well on day one probably enjoyed better, better than average luck on that same day. By the same token, if you focus on a player who did poorly, you have reason to infer that he is rather weak and had a bad day. Then Daniel brings up an uh, actually great point. So uh, he, he says, his students were always surprised to hear that the best predicted performance on day two is more moderate, closer to average than the evidence based on day one would suggest. Okay, so what's basically saying is you got a golfer 
he he does it amazing on the first day okay do you take that first trial and you say wow he must be amazing and the second day you predict he does equally amazing or do you say wow he must have gotten a disproportionate amount of luck and the second day it's more likely he goes back to his baseline average which is this same thing if someone did horrible wow that person must suck they must be having like maybe they're going through a divorce is the next day is it likely they're going to be that bad or is it more likely they're just going to end up being back to the mean and, and the answer is obviously regression to the mean but regression effects are ubiquitous everywhere as are misguided causal stories to explain them and so um, daniel was watching the men's ski jump in the winter olympics and um, each athlete had two jumps in the event and daniel said he was startled to hear the sportscasters comments while the athletes were preparing for their second jump you know norway had a great first jump so he will be tense hoping to protect his lead and will probably do worse and then uh, the, the announcer said sweden had a bad first jump and he knows he has nothing to lose and will be relaxed which should help him do better so this commentator had seen enough of this you know where like someone does really well the first time and they do shittier the second or someone does really shitty the first time they do better the second and he'd obviously detected this regression to the mean, but he had invented a causal story for which there was no evidence. The point to remember is that the change from the first jump to the second jump, no matter how much our system one wants to do it, does not need a causal explanation. It is a mathematical inevitability of the, f of the consequence that luck played a role in the outcome of the first event if you want to get everyone all randy at a party hit a group of people with this highly intelligent women tend to marry men who are less intelligent than they are why your friends are going to jump in they're going to be like wow because you know the women don't want to feel in intimidated or like well because you know stupid men want to be told what to do or well like you know uh they want to avoid competition with an equally intelligent man consider another statement way less interesting the correlation of spouses intelligence is far from perfect aka people marry each other for a bunch of different reasons and intelligence is like one of a multivariate batch plus people being super smart are rare so why do highly intelligent women marry less intelligent men well first of all highly intelligent women there's there's just not very many highly intelligent people and second you know like People marry each other, not just like there's not you know it's not like Hitler's on Tinder like oh hey I need your I need your IQ scores like people marry each other for a bunch of different reasons like because that person's kind that person's nice that person you know takes care of them makes them feel happy you know if, and, and thus super intelligent women on average marry less intelligent men because of math you know if unicorns and horses can breed but there's way more unicorns but those unicorns don't feel you know increased sexual desire for other unicorns. It's no wonder that female unicorns end up with horses. It's just probability, goddammit. But we almost can't believe that because we just want to apply the cause. We want to say this, now that unicorn, man, the horses just, they just fuck better. It's like, no, they don't, dude. You ever fucked a unicorn? I mean, either, but I'm just saying. Jesus Christ. <sighs> I haven't even had enough claw that that comment right there can be blamed on the claw. But, you know, I'm going to create the causal story. It's the claw. <sighs> so now, my priest, this last episode approaches. We're gonna tame this one. We're gonna wind this one down. We got one last one where we're gonna talk about 
how to deal with our intuitive predictions. We're going to touch on overconfidence, and then we're going to all go actually fucking die. If you want that, maybe not the dying, but if you want that, want that sweet, sweet knowledge, close this out, join me on the path. You're going to have to tune in for one last final episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.